Frederick Nietzsche, a philosophical titan and also a German incel that sits atop the Western canon, created a distinction between man's animal nature and the influence culture seeks to assert upon it. Nietzsche saw that culture, and specifically the priestly types within culture, attempted to, quote, improve man. The paradox being, by attempting to improve man, what ends up happening is a taming, a weakening. Imagine a lion in the savannah roaring to let all other lions nearby know where he is, who he is, where he stands, a dare almost, to anyone who seeks to find out if they are worthy enough of overtaking his kingdom and pride. To that of a lion in a cage, in a zoo, tamed, docile, and even obedient. Historically, man has waged war against his animal nature because of the crudeness of the passions. We see a beautiful woman and her bodies freak out. It's like life pushes the lust button and we get rushed with potent libido energy and temporarily go berserk. These passions at the outset are not sophisticated. They're rather crude and blunt. And what the priest class of olden times attempted to do was to tame these passions. In the famous Sermon on the Mount, in regards to sexuality, it says, If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. The priestly types attempted to combat these passions by excising them all. Its, quote, remedy is in essence a castration of our animal nature. And so these priests of olden times repudiated our base instincts, and Nietzsche rightly viewed this as a denial of the desires of life. We see this when it's taken to an extreme form of life denial in the form of the eunuch, or the, quote, most ideal saint in which God is pleased by the most. The, quote, improving culture asserts on mankind is like that of the lion in the zoo, and Nietzsche thought that the only way these priestly types found to tame man was to make him sick and therefore weak. Taking this perspective to its conclusions, it creates a decrepit version of man. And this is called improvement. And this is not a life-affirming perspective. In the Middle Ages, when Christian Europe turned away from scientific thinking, the science, mathematics, and astronomy of the ancient Greeks was kept alive in the Islamic world, where it was further developed by Muslim scholars. In the 13th century, when it was filtered back into Western Europe, it was taken up by Christian monks and theologians. Throughout the late Middle Ages and Renaissance, most scientific leaders were men of the church, people like Roger Bacon and Copernicus. Up until the 18th century, most of the people studying science were men of deep religious faith. This is in part to do with the church controlling the institutes of higher learning particularly the universities. Almost all the great pioneers and founders of the new science were religious men who wanted a science that would harmonize with their faith. All three founders of the new heliocentric cosmology, Nicholas Copernicus, to Kepler, to Newton, saw their new vision of the universe as an offshoot of their theology. Isaac Newton, in particular, was a religious fanatic whose whole life was centered on 
searching and finding God. Even the infamous Galileo was a committed Catholic who wanted nothing more than for the Pope to endorse his vision of the heavens. And it is in the 18th century that we see a fundamental break between science and religion. In this new rationalistic climate of the Enlightenment, philosophers like Kant and Rousseau argued that science and religion were two separate domains that must be kept apart. And this set the ground for the late 19th century when Charles Darwin published his groundbreaking work. In the wake of his book, some Christian believers and theologians began to see science as a threat to their faith, and scientists began to see the church as stifling their scientific freedom. And so these priestly types who attempted to understand God's creation eventually began questioning the very notion of God and broke out of and grew apart from the church. And Nietzsche saw the modern priestly types in his time embodying this rejection of man's animal nature, most of them being weak, soft, with an inability to fight, their bodies being ignored in favor of overly developing the intellect. This is seen clearly in his work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, when a crowd gathered around a tiny man with an enormous, overly developed ear, a man of knowledge rather than wisdom, though I'd argue that the modern priestly types have enormous mouths rather than ears, but that's neither here nor there. We see this hyperdevelopment of the intellect in many individuals today in modern culture, in particular the scientists. A field riddled with dense concepts with a ton of jargon. We see these scientists rationalizing away, lost in thought while their bodies are ignored. The intellect has overtaken the position a more profound truth and understanding once held, one which our ancestors were in touch with and was lost along the way. And it is what Nietzsche meant when he proclaimed, quote, God is dead around 1882. I know this because I was once one of these modern priestly types. I was a molecular biologist working long, long hours in a sterile laboratory. Throughout my 20s, I'd wake up in a panic and immediately feel the need to get to work. I thought I didn't have time to even eat breakfast. I did not listen to the signals of my body, and I began to develop repetitive stress injuries, for instance, in both my hands by petting so much. I worked so hard, I remember waking up one day and my body literally not letting me get out of bed. I was totally burnt out. I knew something was off. I would look around and I kept noticing others were also burnt out, but they kept working. They just kept pushing and pushing and pushing through. Lost in jargon, lost in rationalization, thinking of abstract concepts, and all the while I was forgetting my own animal nature. I was not listening to my own instincts. And here's the thing, at the beginning of the 20th century, people slept an average of 10.5 hours per night. Now that's down to about six. You can't take a fraction of the sleep time of an animal and expect it to be healthy. It's through our nature that we find a more profound spiritual understanding. It's these instincts that the church attempted to control and to, quote, improve. And it's these instincts that many in modern culture ignore. 
or wish to escape from through the use of science and technology. And we see these effects permeating culture. We see now efforts to create ways to upload consciousness onto the cloud, onto the metaverse, where we can escape actual reality and go off into this virtual world created for us while the body wastes away in a corner. According to the CDC, nearly 40% of American adults aged 20 and older were obese based on 2015 and 2016 data. We see over 14 million children and adolescents also struggling with obesity. Over half of nurses and physicians and up to 60% of medical students and residents suffer from burnout. And we also see this reflected in the so-called great resignation during the pandemic where millions quit their jobs. This was in part to do with them being out of alignment with their nature and wishing to find new opportunities where that was not the case. Modern culture is a culture of decadence where seed oils are used as paint thinners and are put into food for cheap mass production where comfort and safety are highly sought after. We carry screens around with us and can dissociate from the body and fully immerse ourselves in this virtual illusory world created for our entertainment where companies sell our information to other companies in order for them to learn about our patterns of behaviors to create even more addicting and immersive products. We plug into a fire hose of information, jumping from one shocking video to the next, filling our bodies with stress hormones. The mind is then filled with so much meaningless nonsense in order to distract us from the void left behind from the lives that we're not living. We are more wired than ever, yet more disconnected than ever from others and ourselves. And your soul, to its dismay, then turns on you because you are not affirming life. You are not manifesting your dreams into reality. You are instead lost in thought, in rationalization, in distraction, and in comfort. And so life pumps your system with stress and inflammation, and problems begin to develop. But there's hope. The way to do this is by connecting with your instincts. The soul speaks to us through the body, through the language of emotion, by tuning into the felt sense of the body and hearing the wisdom being communicated to us, we have a chance of realigning with our nature. And now here we run into another problem. We fail to listen to our instincts because our emotions are chaotic and at times unpleasant to feel. We spend our lives avoiding feeling what we're feeling for a reason. Our emotions can overwhelm us, especially when there are several conflicting emotions speaking to us with different agendas. The Greeks found a solution to this, and it was in mythology. The Greeks created a mythology that encapsulated how one should deal with their emotions in a proper manner. The Greeks lived in a world imbued with magic and meaning thanks to their powerful mythic tradition. These myths were meant to organize and establish the individual psychology, the societal framework, the religious understanding, and their place among the cosmos. These myths deified and gave life to the emotions of the body by casting their emotions 
as gods. You can think about Greek mythology as a universal healthcare system created for the population. Think about it this way. These gods would come down and almost possess man in order to carry out their goals. And this actually is not unlike what happens with our emotions. Whenever we feel anger, for instance, it's as if we become possessed by the god of anger and carry out its will. Whether it's fighting with your political opposition or your spouse or entering into a blind rage because of a laggy computer that doesn't load Fortnite, all are examples of this symbolic concept of being possessed by the god of war. And so in Greek mythology, Ares, the god of war, was depicted as anger, depression as Algea, sexual lust as Emeros. They conceptualized all of our emotions as Eros, meaning passion. Visualize a large pagan courtroom with a weak, incompetent king in charge. And this king is being dragged around by these emotions in this courtroom. He has no strength, no power, and no ability to cast order. Now, what we want to do is to empower the king to properly rule his courtroom, to, to harness this chaotic courtroom and point them all toward the same purpose, to have that courtroom empower him in return. The way to do this is to place in the hands of the king the magical sword of Logos. Logos is the ability to cast meaning and the ability to understand why and what emotions want. Now, this may sound trivial, but you don't do this as naturally as you think. You might find yourself conceding to these urges without examining what they really wanted. I know this was true for me. Someone might have angered me, for instance, and I'd act out on that anger without examining what my emotions really wanted. And so instead of getting possessed by the loudest members of the courtroom, I'd clamp down with a tyrannical fist that left me with no emotions. Logos is the king that sits there and listens to the demands of his stimulation and food-addicted courtroom and figures out how to organize them so they can go to war and build an empire that will stand the test of time. The empowered king with his logos sees the bigger picture and gets his courtroom, his pantheon of erotic emotions, to show up well-mannered and all aiming in the same direction with purpose and focus. So Nietzsche thought those who were too weak of will chose to wage war on their nature. They were too degenerate to impose moderation upon it. Therefore, they needed to create radical methods in order to distance themselves from themselves. A fascinating idea. And so by connecting with our nature, we encounter a more sophisticated approach, one that our culture traditionally handled through repression. The way to do this is by giving the king the sword of logos so he can bring order to the courtroom and listen to what the instincts are trying to tell him. This approach is life-affirming. By bringing order to this courtroom, we can perhaps even begin to beautify our passions, to spiritualize them, maybe by 
transforming lust into something more beautiful like love. We can spiritualize hostility, for instance, by realizing the value of having opponents, having, quote, enemies, because they require us to contend with what we would otherwise not contend with. And this simple mental model helps us update our understanding and our ability to relate to the felt sense of the body, to our nature. Through Logos, we can bring order to these emotions and be better able to listen to our instincts and create a deeper harmony within ourselves, a unified front, so to speak. We can transcend the limitations of this unruly courtroom tugging at this weakling king who's unable to bring order. We can harness the power of the passions and perhaps even spiritualize them into something beautiful that can then serve the higher calling of the king.